Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Premier Doug Ford lies out the template for getting back to normal. Well, sort of. No specific timeline or businesses have been mentioned. Fake cops on the road. Is this a problem? And a local entertainer doing their part to keep seniors happy during COVID-19. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, The Prime Minister speaking earlier this morning, talking about uh, chatting with the premiers over the course of the weekend and talking about some uh, and gave us some insight about how the government and provincial governments are going to address plans for reopening. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say. We're also collaborating on shared guidelines for reopening the economy once the time comes. Different provinces and territories will be able to move at a different pace. But we need clear, coordinated efforts from coast to coast to coast. And no matter where you live, you need to continue following the recommendations from public health officials that will keep everyone safe. The Prime Minister went on to elaborate uh, on this, and but noted that the provinces ultimately have the authority to determine what it's going to look like and what's in their best interest. It's not up to the federal government to check uh, or oversee the provinces in their areas of jurisdiction, and much of this falls within their areas of jurisdiction. Uh, they have uh, the responsibility to do what is right for their citizens. Uh, Every province is in different situations. Regions within the provinces are in different situations. And I have full confidence uh, in uh, the premiers of the provinces and the territories uh, to move forward in a way that is right for them. What we've been working on with the provinces is uh, a set of guidelines and principles that can inform the decision makers in each region. Things like uh, make sure that you have enough uh, medical capacity to handle a potential surge. Make sure you're doing enough testing for your situation and have a plan to do more. Make sure uh, that there are specific guidelines in place for specific sectors or industries uh, that are appropriate to keep people safe. It's not up to the federal government to determine what those are. We have tremendous confidence in the provinces who very much want to make sure that this happens the right way uh, and that we don't uh, fall back into a uh, another phase like we're in this time as we gradually open up. All right, as we start to see, as we round the top of that curve and we're, we're starting to see uh, plans uh, emerge about how we slowly bring this uh, get you know to some sort of normal or as best we can until there is some sort of vaccine. All kinds of terms and, and different ways of doing this. We've heard the term uh, herd immunity, uh, and some have said this is uh, perhaps a way to go. Others uh, strongly against that sort of thing. What do what does all of this mean? Uh, let's bring in Dr. Ro- uh, Rodney Rohde, professor and chair, clinical laboratory science program at the College of Health Professions, uh, that is Texas State University, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Good morning or afternoon, whatever time it is there. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Uh, we've heard the term, and, and you know, there's lots of there's lots uh, of those weighing in on what the best way is to come down off the backside of this curve and slowly start to reopen uh, society as we know it and such. We've heard the term herd immunity. What does that mean, and how does it pertain to this discussion? Sure, great question. It's kind of a um, 
kind of an immunological principle that we we kind of teach uh, in clinical lab and public health and other healthcare kind of settings. Herd immunity actually goes back to uh, really a term that was used in livestock vaccination many, 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 many moons ago. But the general kind of understanding is that once an infection moves through a population, uh, you will reach a certain percentage. Usually it's pushing in the 60% or, or greater uh, type of, of percentage so that enough people are in this in this particular case, even animals, because if you're talking about an animal population, if enough of them are vaccinated or they've experienced the infection naturally, so either way, uh, that you will be protected in a sense from that virus having enough people to jump to the next person. So, you know, if you reach 80% herd immunity in Canada against SARS-2, then that means uh, even if you have someone with the infection, then hopefully eight people around that person has always got immunity. And so that virus has a really hard time jumping to another person. And so it kind of dies out quickly. So that's what we hope either through natural infection or through vaccines, if they come available for SARS-2. Now, I guess the downside of this is, doctor, is that the person has to get it and, and people within that herd have to get it in order for them to theoretically become immune to it. Correct. That is correct. That is kind of, you know, that's the old viruses are going to virus kind of statement I like to make. I mean, generally, really any microbe uh, needs to to achieve, to achieve herd status, herd immunity status is going to have to, you know, basically move through the population at some level. And it it could be in one season. It could be in multiple seasons. Uh, Certainly, if you have a vaccine, if and when that becomes available, you can kind of um, push that along quicker. Because then you, if you crank out enough vaccine and you get enough people immunized, then you raise that herd immunity quickly. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have to kind of let it play out over time. Um, and then, you know, some of the questions that are popping up, you're probably seeing, I guess, that's difficult to answer uh, at this snapshot in time is that how long for this particular virus does herd immunity last? So, just in general, if I'm infected, how long will my antibody levels be high enough? Will they be good for three months, nine months, three years? We really won't know that until we kind of follow it for a couple of seasons to kind of see that. So that's always a kind of a limitation uh, unless you know through vaccination that you can monitor that and kind of know that every year, for instance, you're, you're pumping up the immune system, kind of like we do with the flu vaccine annually. And as you mentioned, I guess the issue here with with COVID-19 is we do not know if those that do get it are necessarily immune from getting it a second time or passing that along. That's right. I mean, that's and unfortunately, you know, I know it's frustrating. It really is frustrating for the public and even for those of us in public health and health care. It's frustrating because it's not a black and white answer right right at the moment, because we just don't know um, without having seen this virus in the past. If particular people, and it could even be, it literally could even be different among different people because, for instance, someone that's very uh, immune competent might have a very strong challenge to the infection and produce high levels of antibody and be protected for longer. Uh, And then you might turn to another person and they may not be as, they may be elderly or they may have some type of weak immune system and they don't produce the same type of high levels of antibody protection, and they may only be protected for a short term. 
So even in different people, you can have different immune challenges and different levels of antibody. And so it's not a black and white answer. And it's, you know, it is frustrating, but that's kind of where we are. Certainly having people infected that recover, you know, I think that's, you know, that's moving forward in, in any epidemic or any pandemic or even just in a localized situation, because then you're hoping that everyone is slowly gaining some protection over time and that it'll burn through the population and, and you know, in the second or third go around that you have less fatality. Um, is this a good idea if there isn't a vaccine? Is this a good idea to let this naturally happen? I know the UK talked about it for a while and then changed the direction that, you know, if people get sick, yeah. well, then people will build up an immunity yeah. to it. But the problem is some people could die from that as well. Right. I mean, great questions. That's the, you know, that's the question of the moment, I guess. And, and really the question, even going back two or three months as we looked at this, when it first happened, I was even, you know, I think a lot of people were hoping uh, that the fatality rate and the overwhelming of the healthcare system, that's the one thing uh, that people keep coming back to like me. It's just such an overwhelming issue for healthcare systems that we're worried about doing that. Um, but in a sense, um, you know, is I think if people put in, you know, really strict controls and the correct messaging and a plan, then perhaps different regions or different areas might can um, be careful with that and, and inch out there a little bit and kind of be careful. Uh, but to do it blindly and not with a plan and not with the typical precautions in place is going to put people's lives at risk, especially those we know that are uh, at higher risk. And I worry again about the healthcare systems being overwhelmed if we're not kind of watching that carefully. Uh, here we are, doctor, going in, uh, certainly in Canada, week number seven of, of isolation and distancing and all of this sort of thing. Uh, obviously, this is a new virus. There's uh, healthcare uh, leaders, you know, everybody's learning as they go uh, with uh, COVID-19. What are your thoughts as to where we are right now at week number seven, how this has transpired, where it is at this point? What are your thoughts? Wow, is it week seven? Yeah. (laughs) And by the way, it seems like a 10 years ago when this all been on everybody's mind so much. You know, I I was just looking at Canada's numbers today uh, when I knew I was coming on. I was looking at the world again. We have, you know, globally, we're over 200,000 cases now. Or, sorry, 200,000 deaths, over 3 million cases. Uh, so we're, you know, we're climbing that ladder. Uh, Canada, you know, you guys are uh, doing, you know, with respect to the whole picture, doing pretty well with about 2,600 deaths. And, of course, every death matters, but 2,600 deaths and not even 50,000 cases yet. And then, you know, we're cooking here in the U.S. with almost a million cases now and 56,000 deaths. So I read a stat and I heard yesterday on, on uh, the television and, in the U.S. that, you know, we're approaching the number of deaths for us in the U.S. that happened in Vietnam, uh, but that took 10 years. So kind of some perspective for, you know, someone like me. I'm 50. I barely remember Vietnam, but to think that we lost 56,000 people in about three months is kind of mind-boggling. But I think, you know, with respect to a novel virus and what I keep telling my colleagues and friends about being such a brand new virus, having no 
uh, herd immunity in the population, so no one around the world had seen the virus immunologically, and really not understanding that that massive uh, kind of cytokine storm that overtakes the pulmonary system and causes such a problem with uh, our respiration and breathing. You know, I think, in a sense, you know, we've weathered the storm somewhat. We certainly have a ways to go. I think we are hopeful, uh, cautiously optimistic that as we move forward, we will add more tools to our toolbox. You know, the one thing I keep reminding people is that we have no antivirals of proven effect yet. We have no vaccine of proven effect yet. Really, all we have is attempts to social distance and use proper hand hygiene and all these other things we're doing to try to slow it down. But it will move through the population, and it will continue to do so because at this point, there's no way you're going to isolate every single person out there without you know, just massive, massive global testing, and that's just going to be hard to do until we ramp up. Uh, you know, I don't even know if we'll ramp up to that type of volume of testing. It's just so difficult to think about 330 million people in the United States being tested at any given time. But So I think we're, we're making some progress. We're learning some lessons, and I just, you know, keep hoping and praying that I'm wrong and that we'll find something soon in a vaccine and an antiviral you know, and or this virus will just calm down on its own uh, during the summer. We'll, we'll see what happens. Again, we have not been to a full season, so it's really anybody's guess at this point. Uh, last question. We've only got uh, a few seconds left. What do you think a vaccination will look like once that is uh, discovered? How do you think that's going to roll out? Do you think there'll be like mass vaccinations? What do you think that's going to look like? You know, I, that's a great question. I've been getting that question quite a bit. I think, first of all, the big issue is first, let's get one, right? Let's hope we find one. The next big question is going to be the manufacturing and distribution of that of that thing. I mean, it takes massive planning to get flu vaccines out in a timely manner every year. So to get it to the world, I think what every country needs to be thinking about and collectively is how do we mass produce this? So can we get can we get major corporations, vaccine producers, pharmaceutical companies kind of ready and geared up so that when a clinical trial shows great results and we've got the safety and, and efficacy available, that we can go to market as soon as possible? And I still think that's going to take time. So I still think it's going to be, you know, a year, 18 months. And that's, again, if we find one, it's going to take time to get that thing produced and probably waves of vaccine. You know, it's going to take efforts to get it out into the population. Dr. Rodney Rohde has been with us, professor and chair, clinical laboratory science program at the College of Health Professions, Texas State University. Rodney, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated and be well. Thank you, sir, and take care and give me a shout if you need anything else. We will for sure. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, we heard earlier today the uh, premier talk about in his media conference about uh, slowly relaxing the rules, going to do it in three stages. However, it did not give any specific industries that will open or a timeline as when we could see any of this uh, actually moving into place. But again, as we're going down the backside of the curve, uh, plans have to be made in order to execute a 
uh, an exit strategy from all of this. Uh, but again, until the doors are flying open, uh, people are getting pretty antsy, and and that's not going to happen for an awfully long time. Uh, that being said, lots of chatter in regard to um, uh, you know uh, bylaw officers and what you can do and what you can't do. And uh, the, pre- the premier was even asked about uh, common sense being used uh, and education, uh, you know, trying to uh, to get people on board and, and doing the right uh, right thing. Uh, let's bring in Monica Cirillo, Acting Director, Licensing and Bylaw Services Division, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Monica, thanks for the time. Much Hi appreciated. How difficult, how challenging has this been uh, for bylaw officers and such trying to wade through all of this and inform the public? You know what? It, it certainly has had its challenges, but I think we've landed on a, a really good, a really good point. Um, we are seeing the public really come around, which is great, and I, we appreciate them having worked sort of with us as these rules were, were rolling rolling down from the province and. And, and through the city and then right out into the community when we're enforcing them. And uh, I, I think they're having a better handle of what they can do and, and what they can't do. My only thing is once the weather gets nice, I just hope that everyone continues to, to sort of stay inside. What are the biggest challenges for bylaw officers at this point? Right now, you know what, it's, it's about having people understand I, I the question that comes up the most is our city parks open our trails closed what how does this work and for, for the most part for anyone that's listening most city parks and trails they remain open at this time for, for walking and jogging and biking but the appropriate physical distancing and not having a gathering of five or more is what's required what is not permitted and i think this is where the confusion comes in and our, our education on the enforcement side is really important is, is when we're when you're using the facilities in the park. So you're using the picnic areas, you're using the park pavilions or, or the sporting equipment that's there, like a basketball net or, or tennis courts. That is not permitted at this point. And do, do most of the people understand this now? I mean, uh, you know, I, I can see during the first few weeks there would have been a lot of confusion. Are, are we getting it now? Do we understand what we can and can't do for the most part? I would say for the most part, absolutely, absolutely. But we still come across, you know what, people playing a quick soccer game or a quick basketball game. So we certainly still see it. But um, but for the most part, well, we're heading the right direction as a city, which is great. So really, uh, the, the message to get across is social distancing. You can, you know, you can still communicate. You can still be active. It's just you can't do it in groups. Uh, is that the basic message here? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the province says that we can't do it in a gathering of five or more, but we also have a city bylaw in place. So we have a physical distancing bylaw, which makes it an offense to not distance yourself um, at least two meters when in a public space with, um, with someone that's not a member of your household. And, and that's, that's a bylaw that we've had in place for about a week. We've been working through education so we really want the community to know what this means now and how they may have to modify what it is that they've been doing. And we have issued two charges with regards to that so far. And uh, will this be more challenging for bylaw officers as these things do get relaxed? I mean, now everybody kind of knows what to do. Uh, much like the way up the curve, the way down the curve will probably be as confusing for people. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There will certainly be those gray areas of, of people uh, 
both both the municipality as well as the community trying to figure out what what this means for what business or for what location. But we we have an FAQ on our website through our frequently asked questions on our city website. I encourage the public to check that out as as decisions are made and from the provincial level and brought down to the community level. We, We do update it so they understand how it impacts impacts them. Uh, you said that two charges have been laid so far, which is pretty low when you think about it. We had heard anecdotally and, and rumors that, you know, uh, uh, homeless people were being ticketed and, and this sort of thing. Is that is that an exaggeration? We when, uh, when I'm talking about um, social distancing or physical distancing, I guess I, I should I should split that up. Physical mm-hmm. distancing. We have a municipal bylaw that was passed by council and that is. Um, uh, a city bylaw that's in place, but the province has also given municipal bylaw officers the authority to issue provincial orders under the EMCPA, so under right. our Emergency Measures Civil Protection Act. And under that act, we've issued 95 charges. So the number is a little bit higher than two on that side. So the two is in regard to businesses. Two is in with regards to physical distancing. So it was um, either... In individuals that were not a part of the same household that were, right. were not within that two meter distance. Um, and, and another one was, in fact, a, a business where there was no social distancing that was being taken place. What are you hearing from bylaw officers that are out and about and trying to wade through this? What, what are they saying to you? What is what is their what is the biggest challenge? I, I think the challenge is, is the changing in, in rules that we're getting from originally from the province. Um, and then just implementing new um, enforcement strategies. So what we always use is the progressive enforcement, but of course that had to change when we instituted a new bylaw. So we're back to education and then we're working through that. Now we're hearing that the province is, is going to be opening up, which is great and it's nice to see that that's happening, but that's going to add a lot more confusion on the ground, as you yeah. can imagine. Uh, you talked about parks, the facilities themselves, the equipment not used, but people can still walk through the parks. Is, is that accurate? That is correct. So we, we don't encourage people, of course, driving yeah. because the parking lots are closed. But if, if it's in your neighborhood and you're, you're getting out walking, jogging, as long as you're with the appropriate physical distancing, you're not having a gathering of, of five or more. There are, I, I should caveat it, there are some locations that are, are, are fully closed. And those would be our Albion Falls, our waterfront trails, our stairs and the golf courses. Right. Even for what, about the rail, what about the rail? What about the rail trail? That's something that's dealt with by the, the Hamilton Conservation Authority. So would it be open or? It would be closed. They, they, they close all of their, their locations. Right. So that would be closed, but we would not enforce there. Right. That would Absolutely. Be yeah. So uh, yeah. really, the, the challenge for bylaw officers is really just beginning. It's, <laughs> by the time <laughs> these things start relaxing and the, and the rules get a little bit more convoluted, uh, you got your work cut out for you, don't you? <laughs> You, you're, you're certainly correct. We absolutely do. We absolutely do. But we're going to do our best. And you know what? We've done a great job so far, and, and we've worked really well with the community, and we're going to keep that going when these rules change once again. <laughs> well, it's going to be fascinating to watch this uh, whole experiment uh, uh, come to an end and, and how we're all going to adjust uh, for it. That's for sure. Anyway, Monica, uh, please pass along our best to all the bylaw officers. We know they're doing their best in these very challenging times. <laughs> Thank you so much. Good luck. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Bye. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, Doug Ford uh, just giving his daily media conference uh, at 1.30 this afternoon and basically talked about a uh, three-staged approach in order to uh, open up uh, Ontario gradually. However, didn't really give a lot of example as to what that would be. Again, pointing out that this is not a calendar, it's a roadmap. Here's what the Premier had to say. This framework is a roadmap. It will guide our collective decision-making. It lays out the threshold we need to hit, the targets we need to work towards. Number one, virus spread and containment. Number two, health system capacity. Number three, public health system capacity. And number four, incident tracking capacity. The framework is about how we're reopening, not when we are reopening. Let me be crystal clear. As long as this virus remains a threat to Ontario, we will continue to take every precaution necessary. We will continue to act based on the best advice available to us. No one wants the economy to open up more than I do, but we can't take anything for granted. We can't take unnecessary risks because we've seen around the world that all it takes is one person. If precautions are not taken, one person infected with this virus can spread it to hundreds of others. And the Premier talking about how this could be the new normal for a while. I think life and and business is going to change overall uh, based on technology and other areas. And, um, you know, we're we're doing things differently and and there's an opportunity to change things for for the better. If we can continue working as hard as uh, everyone has been working, then these numbers are going to these numbers will come down and then we'll get back to as normal as, as possible and until we until we uh, get a vaccine uh, for this virus and it's a little ways off I, I don't I don't think it's going to be a hundred percent normal it won't go I don't think it will ever go back to uh, where it was before uh, because our lives have changed and we're doing things differently. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, very well. So are you surprised at what the Prime Minister, or sorry, the Premier had to say today? Uh, some were hoping for more. He basically uh, laid out a, a three-stage plan that it will, you know, each stage two to three weeks, and it will be a gradual uh, thing moving forward. However, didn't give a, any detail as far as what that timeline would be or what those businesses would be. What, your, what are your thoughts on what he said today? Uh, I was, quite frankly, uh, disappointed, and I'll explain why. Uh, there's two words that were missing, I thought, from the entire approach today. One was evidence-based, and the second word was risk-based. The Germans, who have a, by the way, I'm wondering why should I be quoting the Germans, they have one of the best records in the world, better than Canada, by the way. And that reminds me of that great joke about Babe Ruth in 1930 when he was asked why he was paid more than the president of the United States, Herbert Hoover. And he said, I had a better year than the president. (laughs) Um, In other words, the Germans have a a, a stellar record. And there are several epidemiologists being quoted extensively. One of them is Professor Streak, who is not just studying numbers. He's out in grocery stores and real stores measuring the virus. He's getting his hands dirty, no, no pun intended. And he has concluded that your chance of getting 
the virus uh, being infected with the coronavirus in retail activity, as a retail acti- meaning as a, as a consumer, is practically zero. And the reason that he's come to the he's got a very clear, well defined um, approach on this. Um, he said we've got to. Um, he says you have to look at three things. Are you in close contact physically with lots of other people? With people. Secondly, is it lots of people? And thirdly, is it for an extended period of time? That's what he calls high contact, high risk. So clearly, if you're at a baseball game, a restaurant, you're cheek by jowl together, and there's a whole bunch of you, extended period of time, and and cheek by jowl. So close together, lots of you, extended period of time. And that's being risk-based. We do know there are high-risk and uh, high-contact activities. Number one on the list, we all now know, everybody knows this, nursing homes or seniors' homes or whatever word we want to use. Lots of people with, uh, with compromised immune systems and, and health challenges in close quarters, extended period of time, extremely vulnerable, extremely high-risk. So, of course, we want very stringent rules around the high-contact, high-risk activities, whereas we know that uh, going uh, retail is not a high-risk. We know empirically from the data. For any of your listeners who are getting very angry right now listening to me saying, how dare he suggest such a thing and put us at risk, let me remind everybody, we're already doing it. I go to Loblaws. I don't buy at the curb. I go to Loblaws. I walk into the store. I go to I go to Metro. So to say that we can't have people walking into stores because it's just far too dangerous and risky is just simply not true. If it was that dangerous, we would not allow people to go into Loblaws. We would say you got to order online or you got to buy it at the curb. So my point being that with this evidence that we have out there, I thought I was hoping that they would have a much more risk-based approach, which is being advocated, by the way, by the Germans, by the Italians, by, by the Swedes, by, by Denmark, a risk-based approach where you isolate uh, people that are very high risk and take extra measures, nursing homes, senior citizens' homes, whereas you open up the economy in other areas while maintaining distancing behavior and practices and so forth. And um, uh, I mean, right now in, in Canada... I, I cannot walk into Home Depot, which I go to maybe once a year because it's deemed to be too high risk, but I can walk into Love Buzz five, ten times a week. Hmm. That shows to me that's, that we're not being evidence-based. That's where I'm going with this. And so um, that's what disappointed me. It wasn't evidence-based, and um, it was based uh, – I understand the fear. I, I do. But that doesn't mean that we can't look at the evidence and say, who is getting sick? And it's not people going grocery shopping. And, uh, and this is precisely what Professor Streak at the University of Bonn is saying. This is precisely what the former chief scientist and the founding director of the European Center for Disease Control is saying. He was quoted in the weekend in the Telegraph. He's a Swede, actually, and he's a scientist. And, uh, and so he was pointing this out as well. He says, yes, there are activities that are very high risk, and we have to go take extra precautions. And, of course, people in, in the front line in the hospitals, uh, the nurses, the nurses' assistants, the medical doctors are very in very high risk. They're very brave people, and they're in very high risk situation. And people in nursing homes, but not people in uh, going into a framing store once a year to get a diploma framed. Mm-hmm. And I, I was hoping that he was going to, 
you know, go down that road and say we're going to take a very rig- rigorous risk-based approach uh, based on, you know, low contact, low risk, high contact, high risk to differentiate what parts of the economy come back, can, can come back first. And I didn't hear that. So I heard you, three stages. I heard three stages, but there was yeah. there was almost no detail to the stages. If you listen it, to me, he says, "Yeah, we're going to have some people and and companies in category the first stage, and some in the second stage, and some in the mm-hmm. third stage." Well, yes, I guess so, or you wouldn't have three stages. But again, as you mentioned, didn't uh, elaborate on uh, what those specific businesses would be, uh, and again, what the conditions would be around those. Uh, no, do you think he? No. Do you think he should have? Uh, set out a timeline and, and more examples of what those businesses would be in the first stage. Well, yes, he should have, I think. And I'm not so much the timeline, because he did have some kind of a timeline. He said there'll be about three to four weeks between the first yeah. stage, the second stage, and the third. Okay, I don't, no problem with the timeline, by the way. It was that there was, I, I, I was watching the whole time saying, okay, what's in, what's out? Mm-hmm. In other words, is a frame store included in stage one? And I'm just using a frame store because it just popped into my head. I mean, I haven't been to a frame store in probably five years. Um, But I've been to Home Depot, (laughs) and I've been to Loblaws, (laughs) and I can wander around Loblaws any time of the day uh, from the time it opens to the time it closes. And I've done it quite a few times. <laughs> and But I can't get into uh, Arona, or, or, uh, which is a huge, huge place, uh, mm-hmm. or, or, or Home Depot. And then there's all the strip malls. I mean by strip malls, all the little businesses where, who are getting killed, the small businesses that account for 70% of all the jobs in Canada, by the way. That's what I'm really worried about. And, you know, down the various streets, the, down the various commercial streets, every city has them. Your city has them, my city has, down Bank Street, down Maryville Road, uh, where you have hundreds and hundreds of side-by-side small businesses. And, uh, and, and, you know, surely he could have said, okay, we're going to use the following generic categories to open up first. We're going to say, you know, low contact, uh, low risk, and you must maintain social distancing, and if you're, you know, maybe only two people are allowed in the store per at any moment in time, stuff like that more concrete stuff to at least give a sense. Yeah. But what I heard today was we are all equally at risk. And that is not true. Professor Streak has made this crystal clear, as has the former director of the European Center for Disease Control. He says we are not all equally at risk. People with, with health challenges are much, much higher risk. Older people above 65, much higher risk. Um, but uh, uh, and, and whereas other activities, and, and so there's, the, there's that issue. And then secondly, the type of behavior. I mean, clearly baseball games, football games, soccer games are high risk. Mm-hmm. And music concerts and music festivals, because there's a whole bunch of you side by side. In fact, by the way, in Germany, it broke out. The virus broke out. Guess what? It was at a music uh, festival where people mm-hmm. were drinking and dancing and carousing and partying in very close contact. And that became known as the Wuhan of Germany at this concert where there were a whole bunch of super infectors from this very high-risk activity and behavior. And we now know this. This has been published. Do we, are you surprised you, we didn't get a date? He again said this is not a calendar. This is a roadmap. This is going to happen. But again, uh, you know, basically what he said is this will all be done gradually, which I think we already uh, yeah. kind of knew. Are you surprised yeah. he didn't give a start date for this? Um, I wasn't, as I said, I wasn't as, as worried about that. I mean, I understand that they're tying it into the, um, 
to the numbers of uh, infections. But again, that that ducks the issue I've just raised. Just to make a, a, a an extreme example to make my point, if let's say going forward, 95% of all the infections are in senior citizens' homes, tragic as that is, and that's horrible and tragic, you can't argue that the rest of society is high risk if none of the infections are occurring there. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I wanted to see. It wasn't so much, if he said, look, you know, we've got to take unbelievable precautions going forward for seniors to protect them. And we've got to really take unbelievable precautions to protect our doctors and nurses and nurses' assistants and everybody else in the hospital environment on the front line. Hey, I get all that. Uh, but there was no there was no differentiation of the risk involved in the rest of society. He said, we may allow some businesses to deliver to the curb. My goodness me. Already there's stores delivering to the curb, uh, Rona uh, and, and and all the hardware stores yeah. mm-hmm. are delivering to the curb. And there's some stores that are allowing me to wander around uh, called grocery stores and pharmacies. People say, well, don't you understand? Those are essential. Sure I do, but they can be delivered to the curb too. And yet, are, you surprised he said, he didn't mention, are you surprised he didn't mention more about the long weekend? Uh, we know that well, provincial parks are closed until uh, May 31st, so I guess that resolves the long, we- uh, long weekend issue? Um, I'm guessing that's how they've dodged it. But uh, to answer your question, I, I think the other thing he didn't really uh, address, and no government has, by the way, as in Canada, is the evidence, and I'm reading not just the Canadian or American papers, and people can say, oh, well, that's the states and it's all Trump, except that it isn't all Trump. It's going on in California, which is a very liberal state with a very liberal governor, and people are just defying the ban and going to the beaches. But it's not just in the states. You go, if you read the Italian newspapers or the Greek newspapers or the Portuguese or the German, more and more people are simply going out. And so there's that issue that if you ban almost everything, then people are going to say, screw it. <laughs> and so you're going to get mass disobedience. And you can't lock everybody up. You can't fine everybody. And I think that they're going to lose, quote, control. And I mean by control, encouraging the vast majority of people to stay in because people just aren't willing on that scale to stay in. If we had a more differentiated approach saying, look, we're only going to shut down the high-risk stuff, that means you can't go to the Blue Jays. You can't go to a soccer game. You can't go to a music concert. Mm -hmm. But you can go retail shopping, but with distancing measures in place. Then I think people would be more willing to respect the ban. But when you say, look, everything's banned, or just about everything is banned, people say, oh, screw it, I'm going out. And we're seeing it now. Ian Lee has been with us. Brought School of Business, Carleton University. Uh, the Ford government announcing stages uh, of which to reopen, but not much more detail beyond that. Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Now, we've uh, certainly seen and heard of some very uh, bizarre actions, some scams and things that have been going on over the course of uh over the course of this pandemic and such and we've also you know heard of the uh stay-at-home advisories and self-distancing and all this kind of thing um and and you know here in this country the lockdown per se isn't as uh, stringent as it and stern as it has been in other parts of the world but it has uh, certainly not stopped the conspiracy thinking, and it certainly hasn't stopped, uh, I guess, some from taking uh, action into their, uh, into their uh, own hands. Uh, there have been stories 
about, I hate to even say this, fake cops on our roads due to the pandemic. And again, especially considering what has happened in Nova Scotia uh, last week, you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is all we need. Uh, and and I guess in the situation uh, that we're talking about in, in Wellington uh, County, uh, where there has been reports of someone who has, uh, I guessed, I guess pulling people over and asking them for their credentials and if they should be out or not. Uh, of course, in Ontario right now, there are no such restrictions. The police are not pulling you over at random uh, to check where your primary residence is. That's uh, That being said, let's bring in Derek Rogers, OPP West Region Media Relations Coordinator, and is with us now. Derek, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, glad to be here, Scott. Thanks for having what me on. Can- what can you tell us about these situations? How prominent are they? Uh, we've, I guess, heard of a couple of scenarios of this happening? We had uh, two incidents in uh, Wellington County, and you described them well. Uh, we have one individual in custody and charged. Uh, we have another which is uh, ongoing. The investigation remains ongoing in that situation. So certainly, you know, we've, we, a lot of people have seen stories about, uh, about fake OPP officers uh, in the media over the weekend. Uh, what we wanted to do was really dispel the notion that you know there there are scores of uh, individuals dressed up as OPP officers uh, running rampant in the streets when in, in, in fact that it really isn't the case. Mm-hmm. But we have had those two incidents that you did mention. So what are they doing once they're impersonating a police officer? What are they trying to do? What is the message they're sending or trying to send? Well, in both instances, there, there's a component where where this individual who is pretending to be a police officer uh, is asking COVID-related uh, questions, which is something that we don't do uh, when we do our traffic stops with the OPP. Uh, certainly, we are not out there uh, conducting random traffic stops to check anybody's uh, work status during this pandemic. And, and certainly drivers, uh, if they are stopped and, and they are asked by a police officer, I mean, they're not required to prove they're an essential worker. Uh, and our members, it's an education process with them, uh, as well as with the public, to, uh, to understand the act and, and the powers uh, and, uh, within that act. You know, so certainly we're not asking people uh, to prove they're essential workers. And that's in one of these instances in Wellington County, that's what uh, is alleged to have happened. So would this be someone who's overzealous trying to get the rest of the public to stay home? Is that what, what their motive was for doing this? Well, really, really trying to suggest any motivation would be, would be pure speculation on right. our part. We know that we have seen uh, Facebook posts early in the, the, the COVID-19 lockdown. We began to see Facebook posts that were suggesting that uh, police officers were pulling over people in the Toronto area to check the numbers of, of how many people uh, were in the vehicle, because, of, of course, uh, there's that five uh, maximum uh, limit on the number of people. But we're, we weren't doing that. And that, that uh, social media content came out, and, and, and it caused us a lot of headaches, uh, because we had to dispel that rumor as well. I mean, I, you know, perhaps this person was well-intentioned. We don't know what their motivation was. Uh, perhaps they were trying to modify people's behavior. And uh, and get them to re- you know the respect the threat that we're all facing under COVID nineteen. But the problem is that really that's bad information and that doesn't help. People deserve accurate information at a time like this that's uh, unprecedented. And how severe a crime is it to impersonate a police officer? Well, uh, it's it's certainly very severe. Uh, you know the penalty that we're looking at, I and mean, you're looking at a maximum uh, penalty of two years less a day in jail, and and possibly you know in addition to. Uh, a five thousand dollar fine. So this is not—it's uh, not Trump change. It's—it's it's a serious offense, 
and it uh, it causes confusion amongst the public, and especially, you know, when you're framing it uh, with the tragedy that happened in Nova Scotia, people are understandably yeah. uh, concerned about that and have that in the back of their mind. And I, you know, certainly we don't blame anyone for being for being um, having a, a certain level of concern uh, surrounding what happened in Nova Scotia as it relates to uh, the situations that we saw in Wellington County. Has this prevent, uh, presented a problem for frontline officers where people are wondering who they are, if they're really who they say they are? Has this presented a problem? Uh, I haven't heard any, uh, any anecdotes from the front line, but, uh, you know, I, I suppose that it, <clears throat> excuse me, it's entirely possible. Um, but uh, as far as I have heard, we don't, like I mentioned at the very beginning of the interview, we haven't had uh, scores of individuals wearing uh, fake OPP officer uniforms uh, out there trying to stop people it, it, it's not a it, it's not a serious problem for us but it, it's something that we're certainly keeping our eye on uh, with the understanding that people are concerned so as far as and maybe we should know the rules or set the rules straight right now there are no restrictions and there's no special instruction for police officers to be monitoring monitoring any of this outside the ordinary at this given time is that accurate well what we have are we have um, the restrictions that we're enforcing uh, as it relates to the uh, Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. And right. certainly that uh, what we're able to enforce relates to uh, a business that has been deemed non-essential being open. And then, of course, groups of, of people uh, in excess of five. And, you know, there's a bit of a, uh, uh, I guess, uh, you know, if you have a family that's in excess of five, you can be together. But uh, unrelated people, not in the same household, uh, the limit is five. What advice do you have for people who, citizens who may have a concern about this sort of thing? Well, we put out some, uh, some tips on our OPP West Region uh, Twitter account over the weekend. And, and certainly, um, we would always encourage anyone who is fearful for their safety to call 911. Uh, you know, you're not going to get in trouble. You're, you're, you're legitimately worried about your safety. You're not going to be charged. And we're, we're certainly not going to lecture you about the proper use of 911 in this instance. That is a proper use. So if you are concerned for your safety, uh, certainly drive to, uh, you know, to, a, to a populated area uh, that's well lit. Um, you know, if you have a cell phone, call 911 and, and, and tell the dispatcher who's going to ask you some questions about what's going on with this stop. And if this is, you know, it's probably going to be a legitimate call, but that uh, dispatcher will then relay to the officer uh, that you're worried, that you're concerned for your safety, and to you know to to let that individual know who's behind the wheel uh, that you are in fact a police officer, and uh, this is a legitimate stop. So there are a number of different things that people can do to uh, to ensure that the stop that they're they're engaged in, which is always as anyone who's been pulled over knows, including me, uh, it, it's a tense situation. So yeah. you know, it's certainly it's certainly something that uh, so that people should uh, should uh, pay attention to. Has this really affected the day-to-day operations of uh, of the police service? How, how much of an impact has this issue made on the service? You mean impersonating a police officer? No, just the whole COVID nineteen situation. Well, really, it's 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 remarkable territory. I mean, you know, there are very few of us within living memory who've ever uh, dealt with anything like this. The closest that we can think of, of course, is the Spanish flu way back, you know, over 100 years ago. So it, it's, it's difficult. I mean, our officers need to protect themselves. They need to protect the public. Uh, in terms of, of course, you know, as it relates to COVID-19, so we're talking about personal protective equipment, masks, uh, eyewear, uh, rubber gloves, that, that kind of thing. 
So it, it really is unprecedented, and it's, uh, it, you know, in the early days, it was a, is a bit of a work in progress. We were trying to get, uh, find our feet and understand how the act applied to us and how it would uh, be enforced and what have you. But, uh, you know, it's, it's really a strange time for everyone, and uh, certainly for police included. Derek Rogers has been with us, OPP West Region Media Relations Coordinator, talking about, uh, and no need to be alarmed or panic about this, but there has been a couple of reports, have been a couple of reports of people who have been impersonating officers during the time of COVID-19. Derek, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Stay safe. You too. Glad to be here. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in local musician Paula French. She is with us now. Paula, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I hope you're doing well. I'm good. I'm good. So tell us about what you would normally do when COVID-19 isn't a pandemic. When it isn't or when it is? When it is not. When it is not. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, I work as a full-time um, uh, entertainer that goes into the long-term care homes and retirement homes around uh, the Niagara Pen- Peninsula. And um, I'm just uh, in the horseshoe. I'm just uh, not working right now, as you probably know. But um, yeah, I've been um, doing that for the last five or six years. And it's a pretty fun job, I must say. What's it like to go in and entertain a pile of seniors like this? Um, well, it depends. Um, you know, when you're working in long-term care, it's um, not as high-functioning. Not always, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, so the people are in wheelchairs and um, not always, but as you can imagine, and they're, mm-hmm. they need a little bit more care. And it's, uh, it's just very heartwarming. The people are just so appreciative and... Um, what more can I say? They're just, uh, they're just very, very grateful that you're there and, um, you know, hopefully entertaining them as best you can with, um, you know, music that they're familiar with. And so I go from, you know, the twenties to the seventies to the eighties, sometimes doing stuff that's even current now. Mm. Yeah. So obviously during the lockdown, this has created an issue. So what do you, how are you doing this? How are you, how are you, uh, how are you administering the music now? Well, um, I don't have great technical abilities, but I'm trying. I'm doing um, a virtual show from my home, from my living room. I've uh-huh. done, um, oh, a handful so far. I'm looking to work even more, but um, I, um, I've been doing it from my living room, whereas, um, you know, there, there's been people that um, have told me, the recreation directors, that they only allow four or five four people in, and five people, including the recreation director, to be in there. Right. Um, so it's kind of hit and miss, and I've done three shows last week at St. Joseph's Villa for some of the previous um, places that I've played for in the recreation mm-hmm. directors. But um, So how important is it that you keep doing this during this time? Well, I mean, for them, it's unimaginable. I just, my mother's in long-term care, and I can see how hard it is not to see families and not to see, you know, friends and, and not have outside entertainment come in. It's, 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 it's really, they really, really need it. And so do I. I've, you know, I think this is the, the most fun I've had in 40 years of singing is to be singing in the long-term care homes because they're just, uh, and, and, and sorry, and re- retirement too, but they are just uh, a wonderful audience. 
what does the music bring to them? Why is music so important? Well, I'm sure a lot of them, as you know, suffer from uh, Alzheimer's and dementia and so on. And just you can see when when they are familiar with a song, it just mm. lights them up. You know, yeah. you can hear them singing along, see them singing along, tapping their foot feet when they haven't. A lot of people just um, I've heard from a lot of the recreation directors that, you know, sometimes you go in and this particular person hasn't moved or talked or spoke for you know the last while and then you see them actually being so animated when the music's on and you know it's it's just wonderful mm. any idea when you can get back i guess that's the crystal ball everybody oh, wants that my question gosh. but have, have they given you any indication at all there is nothing and in my opinion i think it's going to be one of the last things to open up is to have yeah. Yeah. But I'm, that's why I'm trying to get this going so much to, you know, involve most of the homes that I've been um, singing at for the last few years. So when you do this, you set up the, the situation in your living room there, and then somebody, uh, 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 an entertainment uh, coordinator back at the home will set this up, and then about five people will come in and watch each performance. Is that the yeah. way it works? Yeah, sometimes they, um, they'll stop in, you know, half an hour into it, 30 minutes, 30 minutes into it, and say, uh, you know, we're just going to bring four more people in and oh, change wow. them over. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't know when the restrictions will, you know, um, ease up for that. But Now, obviously, they get to watch you on a screen. Is there any way for them to interact with you? Is that possible? I can hear them. I can hear them. Yeah. And usually the recreational uh, director will direct some, a question to me, and I can hear them. I can see them. It's just yeah. it's lovely. So they must be uh, amazed that the technology and such allow you to do this as well. <laughs> So am I. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. We're all amazed. We're all learning how to do this, Paula. I know. I can't believe I'm sitting here in my living room and I'm actually, you know, singing and entertaining and there's nobody around except my pup. Now, have uh, have you been able to reach out to other homes, institutions and such to do more of this? Is this something that hopefully you can increase during this I pandemic? I would love to do more of it. I would just love it. I um, um, It breaks up my day, too. It's... Um, I've been doing it on a volunteer basis, so that's kind of good for the recreation directors, too, and for the homes. Um, right now, during the COVID period, I'm doing it uh, yeah. on a volunteer basis. So if uh, there's homes or whatever out there interested in uh, in doing this, Paula, how, can they get a hold of you and book you in for this? I would love that. I have a Facebook page. Um, I have a YouTube page or site, I guess you'd mm-hmm. say. And um, it's Paula French Entertainment. And I can give you the email if you like. Yeah, go for it. It's ASP123 at bell.net. All right, Paula French, local musician who... Uh, used to he's used to going into the homes and such and, and entertainment and entertaining the residents, but obviously uh, with locked doors has had to do that virtually like the rest of us have had to do. And the great thing is is that uh, it's catching on and people are liking it. So if you're interested, uh, take a peek for Paula French on social media. Paula, thanks so much for uh, the time. Much appreciated. Good luck with all this. Be safe. Well, thank you very much, Scott. I appreciate it. You stay safe. You too. Paula French, local musician, who uh, normally is in retirement and in certain homes and such, uh, playing for those that that, uh, are in attendance, but obviously with a closed-door policy, now has to do it virtually. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.